Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. This week I head down to Aberdeen Boat Club to see the yachts and have a chat with Stephen Davis, a mariner himself, who's written a book about a Chinese junk, the Qi Ying, that left Hong Kong in 1846 with a Western and Chinese crew to go to London with Chinese artifacts to exhibit in the British capital. But things went terribly wrong, and there would be crew fallouts and a desperate decision to head the ship to the United States. I started by asking Stephen what was the purpose of the voyage. Now this is conjecture because all of the data has has been lost. I think there was a lot. I mean, there certainly was a logbook at some stage, and recently, and one of the thing joys of writing the book is that people actually read it, much to my gobsmacked amazement.、Um, <laughs> And they're sending me information that I had not managed to find.、Uh, find, and, and one of the bits of information, it, there was a, a early 20th century Wikipedia equivalent called Notes and Queries, which is published over about a five-year period in London, and it's just this absolute mad hodgepodge, where people write in saying, "Oh, what about this?" and that. That provokes somebody else to write in saying, "Oh well, I know this about this," and then they put them all together in notes and queries, and the keying happened to become a subject which people wrote about. And one of the guys writing in was a man called Everard Hume Coleman, who turned out to work for the Registrar of Ships and Shipping in the 1850s, when Charles Kellett applied to become a proper skipper.、Uh, that's another story. In his application, he obviously submitted documentation because, lo and behold, one of the things that、uh, Hume Coleman just copies out verbatim is what, in maritime circles, is known the owner's instructions. If you're a skipper of a ship and you don't actually own it, you've got to have a piece of paper to wave at somebody in some foreign port saying, "Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm legit in charge here.、Uh, it's okay," and that's called the owner's instructions. And suddenly, there were there there was the first ever statement I've ever come across in seven years of research of who were the four owners of the Keying, which was Douglas Lepraik, well-known Opium King,、um, and later、uh, founder of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, Hong Kong Wamper Dock Company, Hong Kong Canton and Macau Steamboat Company, Douglas Steamship Company,、um, and got on stilts almost.、Uh, then William Lane. Now he's very interesting because we know nothing whatsoever about him except that he was the father of Thomas Ash Lane, who founded Lane Crawford. A man called Rowlands, I can't remember his, the rest of his name, who was Thomas Ash Lane's partner in the ship chandler and biscuit factory that was the origin of Lane Crawford, and one other chap about whom I can find nothing at all. So in 1846, the Keying sets off. From the city of Victoria, Hong Kong.、Um, so, tell me that the purpose of this trip was to take this boat from Hong Kong to London. Was it a, a financial trip? Was it a business trip? Was it to see how far this junk could go?、Uh, nothing, nothing as experimental as how far the junk could go. This was straight、uh, Hong Kong theme park mentality.、Uh, <laughs> they were going to, they were going to load aboard,、uh, and they did load aboard a bunch of.、Uh, Ha! Junk. I mean, it was Chinese tat.、Uh, it's the sort of stuff that you get at the naff end of Hollywood Road,、uh, <laughs> and and they loaded this stuff on board. And the idea was that they would have a floating exhibition 
It was uh, part of the Canton Wall, wasn't it? Yeah, they had a part of the Canton City Wall and the stuffed ship's dog that died in New York. <laughs> Although I've just discovered last week that that was a fib because the ship's dog did not die in New York. It escaped <laughs> in Providence, uh, Rhode Island and, and had <laughs> to be recaptured. <laughs> oh, I, I, <laughs> so I thought you were about to say that they, I thought you were going to say they just <laughs> stuffed another one and pretended. Well, maybe, yeah. Um, but he, he was a big exhibit because he was a chow and had and like a chow had had black inside of his lips and black tongue and that was of great interest to westerners who perhaps had never seen a chow with its with its black <laughs> interior skins dog. yeah so but you had yes as you say all this uh, chinese paraphernalia to show and was the idea that oh we're going to um take it to london to exhibit it yeah exactly that and and by people paying for a ticket it was a shilling a ticket to go on board the keying and the crew they weren't just there to sail the ship. You can see from a couple of engravings that this was not a set of performances designed to inform people. It was precisely designed to entertain them. And I think, just looking at it and, and reading about it, designed to appeal to their growing prejudices about how backward and primitive China was. And gosh, look what these silly things that they do and the funny clothes they wear. Uh, it, was, it was more that mindset. And quite, therefore, contrary to the exhibition that had started in London and finished in London in 1842, put together by the ex-American Canton trader Nathan Dunn, which was a genuine and heartfelt tribute to the glories of Chinese civilization. And I can't help but see the key yings, and it was also deliberately and quite unquestionably anti-opium war, anti-opium trade. And I can't help but see the key yings pitch as being in some way aimed to counter that. The idea was that they would recoup then the money from the trip and paying the crew once they arrived in London. And the idea was that the journey would just take a few months. They'd obviously provisioned the ships and they signed the crew on for the maximum period that was allowed under what were known as Asiatic Articles, which is eight months. And that should have been well enough. The average voyage back to Britain at that time for a, an equivalent Western-type vessel would probably have been about three months. So by allowing eight, there was a big margin of error. And I think it must have come as a terrible surprise to Charles Kellett as the voyage progressed to find out how very much slower the keying went. About a knot. So every hour you're a mile further behind what you would have been in an equivalent Western uh, ship or brig of about the same size. Worse, and it, this is we it's all down to Joseph Needham. Lots of people believe that tradition. Joseph Needham? Uh, the great Joseph Needham, the doyen of, uh, of studies in Chinese science and technology, uh, who, who started the monumental, I think it's about 26 volumes now, Science and Civilization in China back in the 70s, or maybe even the 60s. And he, just looking at a junk as a pure exercise in armchair theorizing, declared that the wonder of the junk fore and aft rig, that means it's got sails that aren't square on the on, on the masts is that it could go into the wind in a way that a modern sailing boat does i mean we've got modern sailing boats around us here in aberdeen and and they can march up to windward very well actually there's strong historical evidence that chinese junks actually couldn't go to windward they they just don't have the hull forms that can do it and chinese sailors weren't so stupid as to try uh, they knew perfectly well what their junks were best designed for which was to sail off the wind so 
chance can it suddenly realise, my God, this boat cannot go to windward. And furthermore... Sorry, to windward would be... Well, if the wind's blowing straight at you. Yes. Uh, obviously, you can't, with a boat that's propelled by the wind, go straight into the wind. But you, you can go in a series of angles called tacking. And with 19th century boats, you would perhaps be able to, to, to make towards the wind in big staggering tacks of about 60 degrees either side of the wind, 60 to 70 degrees. And that was perfectly normal for a square rigger. And lots of people have thought that Chinese vessels could perform better than that. Keying's voyage is very interesting because it indicates that Chinese vessels couldn't. They actually performed worse. The Keying simply would not go to windward. When they get to the northeast trades and the North Atlantic, rather than being able to haul up to windward to get around the high-pressure area near the Azores Islands and then pick up the westerly winds to be blown into the English Channel, the Keying just gets blown sideways. Mm. And at one point, it's quite clear that they're running out of food, they're running out of water, and Charles Kellett makes a very, very gutsy decision. If I try and get to, get to England, we're all going to die. So he, he just says, right, we'll can it, we'll go to the States. And he decides to head for Charleston, which is the nearest port he obviously knows something about. I suspect he may have gone there as a young seaman. And on the way to Charleston, they meet an American brig. And this brig hands over a pilot book, which is basically a guidebook to how you find your way in. I think a chart, some food, and the advice, don't go to Charleston, go to New York. So to New York they went. And also in your book, uh, East Sails West, The Voyage of the Keying, 1846, to 1855 it's staggering at that time you know just the risks involved I mean he's made this decision not to go to London they're going to end up in New York but uh, you know they're they're running out of water they're running out of food he's having to make these decisions for an entire shipload of people and uh, yet the statistics on the number of shipwrecks along that coast are quite staggering it's basically the entrance to New York at, yeah. at Sandy Hook and it's this dead flat area, and there's an amazing stat about the, uh, the Never Sink Light, which is the highest point on the eastern coast of the US between Long Island and Florida. At 70 metres. And otherwise, it's this dead flat sandy, sandy coast where if you've got an onshore wind, you're stuffed. And that's often what happened, that, that ships would be hanging around off Sandy Hook waiting for a pilot. And there's that terrible story of the immigrant ships when the weather turned bad before they could pick up a pilot. And next thing, they're nearly all wrecked on the shore of Long Island. And, and in those days, of course, everybody, everybody drowns. So they arrive in New York. So how long have they been at sea at this point? Uh, well, the guys, this is interesting about being at sea and being on board. They signed on in August 1846. Now, they get to New York on the 9th of July 1847. So it's very likely they've been on the Keying pretty much without a break at that point for nearly 11 months and they'd signed on for eight so they had had enough they'd had enough legally they were they'd been on the boat three months longer than they'd signed on for and i think they'd had enough otherwise because there's there's clear evidence that the ship had barely been out of hong kong a fortnight before crew relations started to fall apart and the Westerners armed themselves and sequestered themselves in the poop. And the Chinese, who are suspected of wishing to pirate the junk Keying, are, are kept under armed watch until they've cleared the Sunda Strait. And there's nothing the guys can do except uh, pull together or drown together. And the Sunda Strait is where? Uh, that's the one between Java and Sumatra. 
Actually, with this enormous detour, in a way, to New York, um, the keying is the only junk you say, or the only junk that you've found out so far, that mm. has actually crossed these two oceans. With the keying, we have unequivocal evidence. Here is a junk that sailed around the Cape of Good Hope and up into North, the North Atlantic. And it's the first, and only. Now, by the time they came to New York, the majority of the Chinese crew upped and left. Yeah, well, you see, it is, it's 26. Our real problem is that New York newspaper stories say that the keying arrived with 40 Chinese crew on board. Another story says with 50 Chinese crew. And there's another one that says 30. It's very hard to say exactly what happened. So how long was the Keying and the remnants of its crew, plus its uh, captain, Charles Kellett, how long were they in New York? They were in New York from July the 9th, 1847. They get to leave New York sometime in October. So what happens after they leave New York? OK, so they are... I think they, they need money because uh, New York's not been a, a full success. Secondly, these 26 guys, they've had to be paid off for their time on board because they were only given three months' advance of wages, I think. So they're going to be paid off for eight months' wages each at $8 a, a week. So who was financing this? Well, this is the seed money that came from the, the, the original investors. Plus whatever they'd earned by having the keying open at 25 cents a pop whilst they were in New York. And that it looks like they, were, they, they got about 30,000 visitors over, over a six-week period. So you can do a quick piece of, that's 7,500 US, which in 1847 was, was good money, but maybe not enough because they've got to pay these guys' fares back to Canton as well. Secondly, they're getting into the autumn. And I think Charles Kellett is faintly aware that the winter is not a good place to be in the North Atlantic. So he needs money and he needs maybe somewhere to stay over. So he decides to go to Boston. Now, one of the reasons why he's decided to go to Boston is that Boston has got a lot of China trade interest. This is where, like New York in many ways, but more so, uh, the big China trade traders, particularly Russell and Company, are headquartered. So he decides to go via a couple of places on the New England shore. And then he's towed by the steam tug R.B. Forbes, which is Robert Bennett Forbes's uh, steam tug, around to Boston. As we hear next week from Stephen Davis, the captain of the Keying would then make a hugely risky decision to take the Keying to Britain in the depths of winter, where she's visited by none other than Queen Victoria. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.